there needs to be an atom of a moment within the fashion industry. Veganism is here to stay. Sustainability and high fashion make perfect sense when they work together. In her 1985 hit song, Madonna famously sang about how we were all living in a material world and that she was, in fact, a material girl. Although she may not have been talking about cars in particular, if you compare what things looked like on the road back then to what they look like now, it's quite clear Madge wasn't all that far from the mark. Gone are the dark, square, steel boxes full of single-use plastics, heavy wood and leather. Now we are spoiled by sleek and airy designs that boast recycled composites, shiny surfaces and ultra-durable properties. Increasingly, manufacturers like Audi are offering customers circular economy vision, where components aren't only made from the best material to do the job, but also have a minimal impact on the planet. Pretty smart, no? But if you still can't tell your aluminium from your alloys, or your graphene from your graphite, don't worry. This is the future of the car, a brand new podcast brought to you by Audi Update. In today's episode, we're ducking inside the cockpit and taking a closer look at interior trims and fabrics that are making journeys more comfortable, stylish and environmentally friendly. But to get a wider understanding of how our general approach to materials is changing, we'll first dive into the world of high fashion and discover how big catwalk brands are changing their outlook on things. It actually turns out this industry is facing many similar issues to the automotive sector and we'll talk about the solutions they are coming up with to solve them. We will also take a closer look at Audi and its engineers who are now obsessed with old fishing nets and bottle tops, as well as find out why veganism is jumping off of our plates into our bedrooms. Plus, we'll hear about how sitting on a pineapple may not be quite as painful as you would first think. Hi there, my name's John Silcox and today you're joining me in central London where I'm delighted to say it's beautiful weather, contrary to our normal grey skies and rain. I've just pulled off Regent Street, right in the centre, and I've parked up in a place called Hanover Square, outside of the very imposing Vogue House. For those of you who like high fashion and glossy magazines, this place will need no introduction. But if you're a little bit like me, this is the epicentre of British fashion media. Luckily, the person we're about to meet is an expert in fashion and an expert on the catwalk, and she'll be able to explain how sustainability is really changing this industry and market and uh, shaping the future, a bit like the automotive world. Hi, John. Hi, Alex. Nice to see you. Thank you for, for being a part of this. This is a lot of fun. Oh, it's very comfy. Yes, you're more than welcome. It's lovely in here. It's nice to be in the good part of town for once. We're based up in King's Cross, so it's a uh, well, rough end. <laughs> Mayfair was always uh, the, the cars that I would try to get in Monopoly. Was it? All right, and, yes. And get, build hotels on them. Never, ever managed to get a hotel on Mayfair, but it was always like the aspiration. It was the ambition, it? wasn't it? Everyone likes to try that. <laughs> nice. Um, could you uh, introduce yourself to our listeners, please, Alex, and tell them a little bit about who you are and what you do? My name is Alex Fullerton. I am essentially a stylist and a writer. So I'm fashion director at large of Glamour UK. 
I also style for an array of freelance clients ranging from Marks and Spencers to Stella McCartney and Clarins and I contribute to other magazines such as Grazia, Stella magazine, The Telegraph magazine, Styling Shoots. Um, then the other strand of what I do is writing. So in 2018 I published my first book which was called How to Dress and that was a bestseller on Amazon's fashion category. Wow. Um, and then having written the book, I've now kind of diversified into ghostwriting for other people and writing more features as well. Um, I do a bit of Instagram work and I also lecture at Norwich University of Arts on image making and styling. I suddenly feel really lazy. I've only got the one job. <laughs> that's incredible. Oh wow, how do you find all that time? I think, uh, I think that's it. Well, it's all, it's all divided up. So a lot of the time I end up doing uh, work from eight o'clock on to kind of 11 after my daughter goes to bed. Um, Burning the midnight oil. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> well, yeah, so. that's, all journalists will know that with deadlines and whatnot, this is the... Uh... <laughs> the deadlines. You've got an amazing insight as well. Not only do you know the fashion world and uh, in London and the media world, the glossy magazine world inside out, but you've also got a particular slant on sustainability, um, which actually is kind of a link in between. Well, it's, it's, it's impacting us all at the moment, mm -hmm. the automotive industry especially, and the fashion industry it sounds like as well. And this is something you know a lot about. I, having worked in the fashion industry for kind of 20 years now and seen it develop, um, into this behemoth fast fashion machine which is killing our planet and having played a part in that for the past two decades I feel very very strongly that I need to kind of atone for those sins that have been going on um, and do all I can to learn about sustainability methods share that on my platforms um, and yeah share those learnings to make other people aware of what they can do and what perhaps are the things that they shouldn't do when um, consuming, shopping and being involved in fashion. Wow, okay. Well, that sounds very intriguing. I'm looking forward to hearing a lot more about that. We're going on a bit of a drive today and I think we should get going because otherwise we're really going to get caught in London traffic. It's the, the wrong time of the day. Yeah, Sorry, hour. that's my fault. <laughs> well, no, no, it's nice to pick you up outside of work. And so this is, uh, well, I'll, I'll pop the, the car on. Don't worry if the seatbelts suddenly sort of hug you. That's what they do. It can surprise people. And I'll put the sat-nav on. Okay, I think we should go to Central St. Martins. So that's sort of like the birthplace, the pinnacle um, of the London and British fashion industry where so much talent comes out of and I think that on London Fashion Week Eve it would be amazing to kind of go go back to where it all sort of started. London Fashion Week is uh, the kind of the industry's biggest meeting point. Essentially you have all of the buyers from all of the boutiques around the country, around the world that can travel at the moment um, and press from international and national magazines and newspapers and online titles, influencers, bloggers, everybody kind of converges onto London to see these previews of the new season's clothes that are going to be dropping in spring right now and get that kind of early access so they can plan the buy for their shops, so they can plan shoots in their magazines. 
and some people plan what they might be having in their in their shopping budgets and in their wardrobes personally very exciting okay and because our drive is going to take us through some of the iconic sort of london fashion or shopping streets such as savile row near carnaby street regent street oxford street mm-hmm. could you start by telling me what sort of place london has in the fashion world and why we sort of stand out is there anything different about british mm-hmm. fashion If you think about the big four fashion cities, which are New York, London, Milan and Paris, each of those has its own absolute kind of crystallised identity. New York is always very sort of polished, quite slick. Paris has that insouciant charm. You think of all of the big labels, the Chanel's and Dior's. And Milan is unapologetic, sexy, glamour. Like Versace. Right. In your face, Moschino. It's fabulous fashion. Mamma mia, baby beautiful. London, on the other hand, has had a history of nurturing new talent through its fashion schools, St Martin's for example, and really pushing them to be the most creative, the wildest, the boldest, which then filters through to the designers that appear on the catwalk at London Fashion Week. And in the past, London was perhaps thought of as a little bit gritty lots of fashion shows off Brick Lane in disused car parks but the British Fashion Council which is the body that kind of supports and promotes the British fashion industry have spent a lot of time working on making sure that the designers are savvy and ready to go out into industry and as well as having this incredible design talent they also are able to run their own businesses, know how to license their names, know how to employ people and make their their name above their shop a going concern. Right, okay. Um, Amazing. So that's been the kind of the journey of British fashion over the past five, ten years or so. Okay. And just because we've suddenly come up mm. Savile Row, which is sort of the, the home of menswear or uh, suits or tailoring in the UK, is England more known, well traditionally it was much more known for suits and menswear wasn't it? But is it sort of, is, is the ladies wear sort of the, where it's at at the moment? When you, when you kind of look back through the contributions that British fashion has made on popular culture, that absolute immaculate tailoring has stood the test of time and Savile Row is where the absolute best bespoke tailors are based. But you've also got the influence of people like Alexander McQueen, the late Alexander McQueen, who did apprenticeships on Savile Row and then took his tailoring skills into his own women's wear label. Right. And men's wear as well as as it developed. I think an interesting thing about that play between the genders in fashion is that a lot of brands are run by male CEOs. There are a lot of male creative directors at fashion houses, but one of the biggest end consumer are women, and women are often the people making the clothes. So if you think about the high street, you've got the garment workers in Bangladesh putting together, sewing together your high street t-shirts and pair of jeans, and they are women. Yeah. So there is a kind of a, a misbalance, a mismatch in between. Who's doing what gender-wise? Okay. But fashion and what we'll be seeing at London Fashion Week 
tends to kind of skew towards women because they were traditionally the biggest consumers. Although now you're seeing everyone enjoying fashion and this week it was the Met Gala in New York and we saw men on the red carpet wearing the most incredible statement making pieces and being a lot braver than just a traditional tuxedo because now luckily we live in a society and we're kind of like pushing the fact that it doesn't have to be a suit or a man doesn't just have to wear a suit to look good so men in skirts men in dresses which if you take it back more centuries was totally accepted but in yeah. in recent years it's been a bit like ooh, a bit that's a bit weird <laughs> when everybody should be able to enjoy the absolute expression and joy that fashion can bring and that way of defining your personality showing who you are what your tastes are what your politics are through the clothes that you wear should be free for everybody to be involved in You mentioned actually earlier, I should come back a little bit to Audi, uh, since we're driving one today. You mentioned sort of British designers, uh, and you dropped the name Stella McCartney. She's actually done a collaboration with Audi quite recently, looking specifically into materials and sustainability. Just to talk you through this car very rapidly, so this is a, an A6 Allroad. It's the new one, it's the top spec level one, uh, which is called Vorsprung, and it's got this Valcona leather seats and steering wheel and all this lovely trim here, mm -hmm. which is kind of like, this is all animal leather, and then it's got this brushed aluminium inlay. Normally this car in the base level comes with wood, and this is a, a natural leather, but you also have in, the, in here, uh, this Alcantara, which is like a, a man-made material. Oh yes, I know about Alcantara. I wanted to buy a sofa that was in Alcantara. Oh, very nice. Okay, yeah, it was massively used in the yeah. car industry. And then the normal seats are a thing called Dyneema, but this is uh, a car you can buy at the moment. Things that are coming through, even newer models, such as the Q4 e-tron, a lot of the seats are made with recycled materials. There's one that's got, I think, 26 bottle tops in each seat. There's another one that's using recycled fishing nets to make seats. And this is somewhere I think there's a massive sort of crossover in between the, the fashion world and the car industry, is that sustainability is massively under the focus. Indeed. So let's take a break from Alex and John and join journalist Angus Fraser, who has been taking a look at the surprising link between Audi and high fashion. The catwalks of Milan and Paris may seem a long way from the Audi factory floor, but actually, it turns out the fashion and automotive industries have a lot more in common than you might think. In 2021, Audi was once again the headline partner at Design Shanghai, Asia's leading international design event. There, it exhibited a range of innovative recycled material solutions. In an exclusive partnership with Stella McCartney, the German car brand highlighted its passionate commitment to sustainability. And the four rings threw in a few surprises too. Discarded bottle caps, carpet cutoffs, and tatty old fishing nets. But don't worry, we'll explain it all a bit later on. First, it's time to hit the catwalk and give it the full blue steel. London-born Stella McCartney is of course one of the most influential fashion designers in the world. 
Meghan Markle wore a Stella McCartney dress when she married Prince Harry. Team GB athletes won heaps of gold medals in Stella McCartney design kit at the Olympics and the Paralympics. Even Peaky Blinders hardman Tommy Shelby is a fan of the brand. Well, the actor who plays him, Killian Murphy, is anyway. But you know what we mean. McCartney is equally well known for her fight against climate change and her drive to cut the carbon footprint of the fashion industry. These are, after all, the values that she grew up with, instilled into her by her father, former Beatle and musician Paul, and her late mother Linda, a photographer and animal rights activist. McCartney took lots of influence from her mother, whom she describes as her muse. Such values were far from common when McCartney was growing up in the 1970s though, and she was often made to suffer for them. In a recent interview, she told Audi, people would make fun of me or get very aggressive, angry and defensive. However, the experience clearly put steel in her spine. When she embarked on her career as a designer, she was determined to hold on to those ethics, even though sustainability was virtually unknown within the industry back then. Looking back, Stella remembers, it took time for people to take us seriously. At first, in every interview, people just wanted me to talk about my father and his music. But there's been a transition and now the conversation is very much about sustainability. Shunning animal-based materials such as leather and fur, McCartney had to do things a hard way right from the start. Continually seeking out and inventing new methods to create exquisite high fashion without any animal byproducts being used. Today though, McCartney says that sustainability and high fashion make perfect sense when they work together. She also says that running your company along sustainable lines is vital if you want to attract the best young talent. And now the British fashion designer has turned her attention to waste materials and how to incorporate them into her products. Such thinking dovetails with the views expressed at the recent COP26 summit. There, world leaders urged all industries to close the loop in order to reach net zero. The circular economy mantra focuses on the values of recycle, return, repair and reuse as opposed to take, make and waste. Audi has been carrying out pioneering research on this topic for many years, particularly in relation to what happens to the batteries that power electric vehicles when they reach the end of their life, or at least the end of their first life. As well as looking at ways of redeploying the partly depleted batteries in other vehicles, such as forklift trucks, trials have shown that more than 90% of the cobalt and nickel in the high voltage batteries of the Audi e-tron can be recovered. But there's still a long way for all industries to go. Each year, 8 billion barrels of oil are used in the production of synthetic materials such as nylon and polyester, fabrics that often go into low-cost or single-use items and thereafter head straight to landfill. Now, new methods are being used to renew the life of these existing materials, limiting waste through innovation. One of the key materials that caught Audi's attention is Econil yarn, which is spun solely from existing nylon such as carpets, waste fabric offcuts and yes, even old fishing nets and plastic bottle tops. Amazingly, this regenerated nylon is exactly the same quality as brand new nylon. And some of that nylon is now incorporated into the interior fabric of the all new Audi e-tron GT, which is spearheading the brand's rapid move towards an all-electric lineup. Let's hear from Mark Lichter, 
head of design at Audi on how the e-tron GT combines both performance and sustainability. With the Audi e-tron GT we combine on one hand performance and sustainability. And this is visible in exterior design by these aerodynamic features like air curtain, flush rocker, these sharp edges, huge diffuser in the rear end. And this is um, improving the aerodynamics and with this the range. In the interior this is getting visible by the leather-free interior. For the first time we offer in the Audi e-tron GT a leather-free interior. That means all the carpets are made from recycled PET bottles and the seats cover is made from recycled fabric and PET bottles. So this is for the first time we offer a really sustainable approach at Audi. Pretty impressive wouldn't you say? And also Audi's engineers have even experimented with a paint that reflects considerably more sunlight. As a result the car doesn't heat up as much and the air conditioning doesn't need to work as hard, which means that it consumes less energy. Stella McCartney uses the same Econil fibres as the e-tron GT to make her new Falabella handbag. This creates up to 24 times less environmental impact than if the bag was made from traditional Brazilian calf leather. Talking about the bag, Stella said this to Vogue magazine. I think one of the biggest compliments is when I know people go in and buy a Falabella bag or a pair of shoes or a faux leather skirt and they have no idea they're not made of leather. I think that's really where it becomes sexy, where you're not just providing an alternative, you're creating a great product. So while it might not sound very luxurious to be sat on an old fishing net or a recycled plastic bottle, thanks to incredible innovations in the material world, the face of high quality textiles is changing. While the highest grade of leather and wool products will always feel wonderful, now you can also enjoy amazing results with sustainable animal free materials that are kinder on the planet. And ultimately, what can be more luxurious than that? Although luxury materials and high fashion may seem rather aloof and a long way from day-to-day -day life, they are actually more relevant than it would first appear. Let's get back to our London drive and hear Alex teach John about the wider-reaching impact of her industry. High fashion has got way more of an impact on everybody's day-to-day -day lives than you could ever imagine. It trickles through, they call it the trickle-down effect. Mm -hmm. So what you see on the catwalk will then appear in high street stores and then will appear on market stalls, whether that's a, a puffed up shoulder or a colour, it will all eventually be part of us. And I do feel that fashion often gets belittled because it's seen as a woman's world. Oh, it's old fashioned or, oh, my, my wife loves fashion or you should talk to my wife about that. If, if I'm at a, an event or end up talking to somebody. And the British fashion industry contributed 32 billion pounds to the GBP wow. and employed almost 900,000 people, which is more than the music, British music industry and more than the British car industry. So fashion's impact is wildly underestimated and brushed off and put down when everyone that we're passing on the street has bought clothes. At the moment, I don't think you can move for people talking about sustainability. It's absolutely at the forefront of everybody's minds, conversations, and 
At lunch, I had lunch with a fashion designer called Patrick McDowell, and he's working with the Italian label Pinko, and he has gone in there and is recreating brand new things with their dead stock fabrics. There has been, as you said, this huge problem. And a lot of that is overproduction. So people are kind of guessing what people might like to wear, what fabrics they might like to wear. They order in thousands of metres of it and then trends change and then they're left with all of this fabric. Right. Dead stock. Yeah, that's dead stock, okay. Yeah. So he's a really cool British designer who is making huge strides in sustainability, working with things that are already in existence. And like you say, with the recycled elements that are in the car seats, there are a lot of brands in the swimwear and activewear realms that use recycled ocean plastic to make new fabrics. Geeky fact, in the journey of your clothing, the biggest planetary and pollution impact comes at textile manufacture point. Okay. The two biggest fabrics that are used in clothing are cotton and polyester. And polyester is a plastic made fibre which comes from oil. And 65% of the world's clothing is made from polyester. That all has to be made from scratch, from oil, carcinogenic chemicals making it. Why are people still thinking about making it if they could get the recycled fishing nets, if they could get the recycled bottle tops that you're already part way there? Yes, they have to be... It's already come out the soil. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They have to be dealt with to make turn them into the fibres, the upholstery, the fabrics, but that's taking one step out of the potential pollution journey. And a lot of that takes place in the Far East and in China where things are unregulated in the same way that we have kind of in the West. So there was a, an industry joke, it's not a joke, it's, it's sick, that you could work out what next season's colours were going to be by looking at the rivers in China because the dyes would flow out of the factories and go straight into the waterways and you could be like, right, it's pink, oh, it's, it's purple away. this season. Yeah. Which, oh, how um, horrendous, yeah. So that's the appalling. direct impact of the fashion yeah. industry. Here we're coming up Regent Street. We're coming to the biggest shopping streets in uh, London. Uh, we'll just come across Oxford Street in a second. There's Carnaby Street up there. So this is where all the consumers come. Mm. Um, and I'm sure you know your way very much around here, probably much better than I do. <laughs> um, however, we were talking about the industry and looking at the industry. Is there something that people and consumers can do? And should the focus also be when people go out to buy things? Should they think about this as sustainable problem and see if they can make changes in their sort of habits to, to influence it in a positive way? So there's a lot that individual consumers can do. Sometimes, and I feel it as well, you feel a little bit overwhelmed. Ah, oh, the world is what a state we're in. What can we do? I can't do anything. I'm just one small person. But absolutely, as individuals, we all have a huge amount of power. And if we're out there ready to consume and shop for things, that's the greatest power. Vivian Westwood has this amazing quote, choose well, buy less, make it last. And if you want to shop considerately, I think living by that phrase is essential. Taking it further is thinking about buying pre-loved or not buying at all. Is there something that you could rent if you have a wedding to go to? 
and I think in menswear it's been very natural to rent a nice suit or something formal wear mm -hmm. but women's wear it's been a lot less prevalent except now rental is coming through do you really need to buy something in the first place or can you buy it secondhand pre-loved vintage then look at what the item is that you are buying so check the label so look at what the fabric content is there's a huge discrepancy in the way that cotton is manufactured conventional cotton is an incredibly thirsty crop it needs vast amount of chemicals to produce um, and it is is kind of oh, it's so wasteful in what it needs there is um, the Aral Sea was the planet's fourth largest inland waterway and it lies between Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan I okay. believe and over the past 20-30 years it has drained completely dry because those areas were really highly producing cotton areas which needed water 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 mm -hmm. and they've now turned that inland sea a sea an actual sea into desert so it's desertification and cotton also is quite a high maintenance crop it needs a lot of pesticides to make it grow and fertilizers so are you buying this t-shirt and is it conventional cotton because that would be something that I would try not to buy so going back to that point check the label what are your clothes made from On the label it will say made in Bangladesh, Turkey, Kenya, the UK. Mm -hmm. That's where it will have been put together. And there are countries that are known for forced labour. So you don't want to be buying something from there because there's a chance that it could have been a forced labour person, human, yep. making your clothes. You want to make sure that there are many... Um, workers rights the basics like minimum wages or living wages going into the people who are making your clothes which is why if you're buying a t-shirt which costs about the same as a cup of coffee somebody is going to suffer i mean but these are the, like the moral questions of our age you know when we are at this point that we're the ones who can make the decisions to hopefully shore things up for the future One moral lifestyle choice that has gained a lot of traction lately is veganism, especially with younger, urban-based populations. I mean, who hasn't seen vegan options pop up in menus at their local restaurant? But did you know it is also affecting how people sleep? No? Well, we checked in at a very special hotel to find out more. My name is James, James Clark. I'm the general manager here at Hilton London Bankside. I work with the great individuals who go out every day wanting to make guests happy. And my job is just make them perform the best to deliver fantastic customer service. Hilton Bankside, for me, it's Hilton Bankside is the Hilton with a twist. It's, it's been open six years. We're in the coolest area in London, an area called Bankside, which is right beside the Tate Modern Museum, not far from Borough Market. And it's an electric area. And Hilton Bankside was very much led on a design-led area program in the sense that it very much represents the community you live in. So when you walk in, you never think you're in a Hilton. It is very contemporary, very Manhattan, New York look. 
uh, because obviously the industrial part of the, representing the industrial revolution within the Bankside area. And Bankside is very simple. It's between London Bridge and Blackfriars Bridge. So it's really just a small envelope with great fun activities to do. As a hotel, we always love to have fun. And as I always say to the team, you know, we want to deliver magic carpet experience to each and every customer, but also to team members as well who join us. Um, and my passion is, you know, if you take care of the team, they'll take care of customers and your community. Uh, and Bankside has a very vibrant community. And, you know, when we deliver a magic carpet experience, it, it, it takes a team to execute 120% to perfection to deliver that wowness so people want to come back. But I wanted them to do it in their own style and personality, and that comes in from the community. And what do I see in this area? It's very up and coming. People are trying different things around art, food, um, obviously business. And one thing what I saw coming was veganism. And everybody loved the fact that, you know, they always do the fad in, in January. But really, when I went to the United States and I met a client and the client says, you know what, you're boring. Why can't you do something radical and take care of the, you know, really a, a market, a segment that is a lifestyle choice. And after his conversation, I bought into it. I said, this is a lifestyle choice and veganism is here to stay. And really, so I came back and I said, why don't we do the world's first vegan suite? Uh, and literally make it from material that is not coming from any animal product whatsoever. Um, so we partnered with a local designer, and that's what I'm talking about, community, because I believe in sharing investment within the community. And equally, I got with the Vegan Society here in the United Kingdom. Planning-wise, it took us over a year to really get the authenticity of the suite. And what do we mean by that? We rested on a hero material called Pinatex, which comes from pineapple. But even more research was done reference pineapple. Um, we referenced it on a gentleman called John Tresident, who was a famous English botanist. He's buried in the area. He was the first person to bring pineapple back to the United Kingdom in the 16th century. And that's why St. Paul's has the plinths has pineapples on top, because it's proof that you survived and you were very wealthy. So you had a big party by putting a pineapple on the door. Really, our hero material is Pinatex, which the, a lot of the materials in the room are made from, um, but it comes from the fur of the pineapple. For us, it's really, um, we brought that to life in two, January of 2017, and it's been a phenomenal success since then. So when you book this suite, we will know, um, because obviously you've made a reservation. We will then email you and say, welcome, welcome to the vegan experience here in Hilton, London, Bankstown. So when you arrive into the hotel, you know, and I don't discriminate anybody, but we will know who you are by the time you let us know when you're arriving and we'll seat you in an area in reception, which again has been transformed into, for a want to word, an area which has no animal products, which is our vegan check-in desk. We will give you a beautiful tea product made from peanuts, which is red and it says vegan sweet on it. And from there, we'll escort you to the room. So when you walk into the room, you'll walk in and it's a beautiful one bedroom suite. Um, you have bamboo floors and carpets. You have a vegan library about plants. You've got living plants in the room. In the mini bar, you have some vegan items. Then you walk into the bedroom. You have, you know, recyclable pencils. You have a pillow menu. And the great thing about the pillow menu, you have a choice of five different types of pillows and what they're made from. You have, for example, buckwheat pillow, or we have a killer pillow, pillow, or a millet pillow as well. So you have your choice. 
Um, most importantly, the amenities, which is in the bottom, it's from a beautiful, small, little Italian um, vegan firm where we buy the soap, the shampoo and the conditioner. And it's a very high end. So again, we're just making sure we take care of all the needs a customer may have. And the most important thing for me is, apart from being a vegan suite, you have a great night's sleep in the bed. And that's the key. Uh, when you get up in the morning then, after a great shower, refreshed, you come down to the restaurant and you show the team your key wallet. And we have a little vegan area for you within my restaurant. Where, again, it's from Pinotex, the furniture, the chairs, everything. We have a vegan menu. So you can have a wonderful breakfast when you're here. So again, it's leaving the hotel with saying goodbye, have a great time and come back and see us again. And that is the vegan experience, which translates into my magic carpet experience. I want guests to float out of here and say, wow, come back, let me stay in that hotel. I hope you're feeling refreshed. I certainly am. So let's get back to the busy streets of central London and find out how Alex and John are getting on. We've just gone past BBC House mm -hmm. and just thinking about the media, what role do you think you as a sort of media commentator and someone who works for all the big magazines has uh, and what role do you think the big magazines have to make a change? Is it to mention these things? Is it, is it to educate people? Is it to, to, to raise big questions? Is it to talk to the big brands and expose them or at least sort of question their methods? Is it all of that? All of the above, basically. <laughs> Tick, tick, tick. Um, back to the BBC, I think that there needs to be an Attenborough moment within the fashion industry that takes it to the wider consciousness because I think that it is quite niche still and it is an industry conversation and if I talk to say my school mum friends at the gates, they don't realise that they're, they're having an impact by what they're buying and what how they're washing their clothes and where they're getting their clothes from or their kids clothes so it needs to get out and I think that a huge amount has to be placed on media, newspapers, magazines, but I also think that government could help in the way that the Surgeon General came out I think in the 60s and said that smoking is bad for your health. Mm -hmm. I think there needs to be something like that from the fashion industry. Fast fashion is bad for the planet, whether that's taxing the brands, not making it as accessible because you can buy a dress or a bikini for a pound and that is killing the planet. What would you recommend are the long-term buys? What should you invest in? If you're looking for things to last in your wardrobe, unfussy, simple, minimal, kind of clean classics are the things that aren't going to go out of style by their very nature, trends and fashion. A colour, a shape, a silhouette, a detail that is very of the moment. And if you strip all of that back and choose things that are devoid of those, they're the things that are going to be timeless. But yeah, back to, to Dame Viv, buy less and choose well. So I think it's looking for quality. So choosing quality materials that are going to last and it's kind of going beyond the what is it made of because yes something might be made you might go and think white shirt that's very classic and this is organic cotton that's great but if you are buying it from a, a fast fashion cheap retailer 
on the high street, turn it inside out and look at the seams because the seam allowance might be tiny, which means it's going to unravel. So yes, it's organic cotton and that's better for the planet than normal cotton, but if the seams unravel, then that's no good because you're going to be left with holes and you're going to want to chuck it. Learning how to mend your clothes or getting somebody to mend them, a seamster or, you know, alterations at the dry cleaners, mm -hmm. although dry cleaning is another huge area of pollution. <laughs> <Detection>. <laughs> oh yeah. If you're a bit more quirky and eccentric than me suggesting that you buy a wool camel coat and a tailored white shirt and a pair of indigo jeans is not going to help you for your personal style. Mm -hmm. So I'd probably say identify your personal style and then make sure that everything you own fits your own fashion MO. Right. Um, and is that is that kind of one of those where a lot of people sort of buy things on a whim and then never use it? Is yes. that yeah. Something to just consider your purchases a little bit more. Think about yes. them, spend the time, research, and then yeah, you might not have to either leave it in the yeah. wardrobe or chuck it off after a year. I had this thing in in my book where I said that uh, you should be able to identify your style in three words. So mine is denim, 60s and tomboy. And everything I have that I wear fits those three words. Sometimes I've gone a bit crazy and been like, oh my goodness, I love that purple sequin t-shirt, which isn't denim, 60s or tomboy. But then that's the thing that I never wear. Could you, potentially as well, for a bit of fun, could you put your sort of fashion connoisseur glasses on? Could you give an appraisal of the interior of this car and work out whether it's fashionable <laughs> or not fashionable? Are there any elements you'd see, I don't know, like the, the stitching here or the materials used? Could you give it an assessment maybe? Okay, the interior of this car is absolutely fashionable because it focuses on those timeless colours, that palette of kind of like charcoal and graphite accented with silver so I kind of use silver as the day to night element so it's the equivalent of swapping your flat shoes to heels it just elevates your look a little bit so I love to see the silver and it does feel really slick when I want to look very smart I love a trouser suit so that slick tailored silhouette which really and is it weird that I'm kind of like an analogizing a car to an outfit, but I feel this is like bossing it in a slick dark trouser suit. <laughs> with maybe a pair of Malolo Blahnik heels with a, a silver tip. That sounds very cool. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very cool, it's very comfy as well. Here we are outside of central St. Martins, just pulling up, there's lots of fashionable students mm. around wearing things that I probably wouldn't get away with. Talking about the future of fashion and sustainability, it's quite possible often to sort of see it all as doom and gloom and all a bit bleak. Is there anything you think you could say looking forward that we should all sort of embrace and get excited about that could help lift the mood? It is really hard not to let yourself get kind of dragged down by all of the depressive news that's occurring within the whole world. But I think a lot of the things we've talked about today are essentially hopeful. They're optimistic 
elements within the auto industry, within the fashion industry. And if we can work towards those and, and get everybody aware of them, there is plenty to be hopeful about, which should get us out of that kind of like miserable place where you feel you can't do anything. Those small changes really can make an impact. Just focus on those, I would say. And we can, we can do it. We can make changes because no one's too small to make a difference, really. I think that's a key message. Well, there you have it. Next time you pop to the shops and buy a pair of socks, think twice. Your decision could help shape the future of our planet. In all seriousness, what a brilliant and uplifting message to end this episode. And with it, the first series of The Future of the Car by Audi Update. We do hope you've enjoyed looking at tomorrow's world. Fingers crossed you'll be able to jump back on board very soon as we investigate other big questions facing the world of personal transport. For more updates, please regularly check your inbox for communications from Audi and visit audi.co.uk for other lifestyle stories and technical information. It's been great having you and we look forward to catching up again on another adventure very soon. Bye!